On today's episode of the Training Peaks Coachcast, your source for the latest information about the art, science, and business of coaching. I sit down with Ben Day from Day by Day Coaching to pick his brain about what he sees as the biggest keys to being an effective coach. Ben raced professionally for a number of years before discovering his passion for helping others. In 2014, Ben retired from racing professionally and shifted his focus to building a successful coaching business. Ben and his all-star staff of coaches have worked with many athletes over the years from amateur to professional, and today he's going to share what they've learned to help you be the most effective coach you can be. Enjoy. Welcome to the Training Peaks Coachcast. I'm your host, Dave Schell, and today I'm really excited to be joined by Ben Day. Ben is a former professional cyclist who raced for United Healthcare, and then he retired in 2014 to focus on his coaching business, Day by Day Coaching. Ben, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, mate. Great to be here. I don't know if, if this will be as fun as some of our other conversations when we have a beer in our hand. So <laughs> maybe it's a little bit too early for that, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, we have a uh, recording studio here at Training Peaks, and unfortunately, one of the rules is no beer because. Uh, what sort of what sort of a recording <laughs> studio is that? Here, here we are in the studio. There's rugs on the floor. I can just see beautiful music has to be made here for sure. And that's I don't true. Know, don't you need a little bit of something for a bit of creativity? Yeah, I don't yeah, know. yeah, lubricate the uh, the <laughs> exactly. creativity for sure. <laughs> Before jumping into it, could you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself in your own words? Yeah. So. Um, from Australia originally, uh, was over there and sort of got infatuated with cycling. I think the very first thing that I ever saw was the 1984 points score race on the track in what I can't remember where that was. Maybe it was Barcelona or something like that. I remember seeing that on TV and it was pretty confusing at that point. But that was the first time I remember seeing cycling. Um, Ten years later, I started following the Tour de France. We used to have a 30-minute broadcast that we would watch there with Phil Liggett and Paul Sherwin and um, just, you know, watching the Aussies sort of come through at that point and uh, it was inspiring for me. That was sort of what got me into the sport. I never thought it would take me as out of my country for one thing, um, but I've been out of there for 19 years. I haven't lived in Australia for a long time now, much to, to the chagrin of my, my dad and uh, my family and stuff. Um, but yeah, so I started racing professionally in 2001 or 2002, something like that, uh, over in Europe. I spent seven years over there and then came to the US in 2007, raced with Navigators that first year. Um, did a, did a bunch of teams like Toyota United, uh, V Australia based over here in, in Boulder, Colorado. Um, Kenda raced with them for one year and then three years with UHC before I retired in 2014. So I was midway through my career, this is 2008, and the the one thing about being a professional cyclist, which really sucks, is that it's a very unstable environment, right? So like one year, your results are great, your form's good, the contracts are flowing, you know, you're making some decent money, your career's looking good, and the next minute the rug will be pulled out from under you. And it's just that instability, I think, is what costs most of the professional cyclists by the end of their career, just that mental fatigue of like, you know, I don't know what's happening next year. Like a two-year contract in cycling is reasonably rare. So, you know, you're fighting every year for your contract. There's a couple of three-year contracts out there, but that's even, that's like that winning that $1.6 billion lottery that happened yesterday or whatever. Um, so it's like year after year, you sort of have to keep proving yourself. There's always that pressure on you. Anyway, so like I'm midway through my career and I had some really good years and I had a few roller coaster years where I was just having to start from scratch. 
in a career aspect again to like just not as making as much money, being on a smaller team, that sort of stuff. And then you just you know, have to dig down and, and build up again. And uh, I was getting a little bit tired of that. And um, so I was aware as well of my peers in, in some of those teams and that they were coming into retirement and then just seeing how difficult it was for those guys to retire. Because the thing is, as a professional athlete, it's like every single day that you wake up, you're driven for a race that's three months down the line. So you have a purpose every single day. And then when that gets taken away from you when you retire, it's a really, really hard transition. So I saw all those sort of things happening at once. I'm like, okay, what am I going to do for the rest of my life when I stop racing? Because I still need to pay for this mortgage. You know, I don't want to get foreclosed on the house. And I'm like, well, what is it that I'd like to do? What's something that you know, they say that you should make your job your life. You should make it something that, that doesn't feel like you're going to work each day. And so that's where I was like, for the last 15 years, I've been waking up and just thinking about my preparation, whether it's like eating properly, um, what I'm going to do when I'm out training, uh, good recovery protocols, uh, race tactical stuff. You know, I'd been learning all these different things from um, some really talented coaches that I'd worked with throughout the years. I came through the Australian Institute of Sport program. So over there we have so much support and so much good science and so many good people, experts in their field, helping us along and giving us a lot of knowledge. And this is a lot of the stuff that I still use in this day and age. So I'm like, okay, if it's all about preparation, I'm just going to make that the next thing that I do. And I love to help other people. Like I was never shy of passing an opinion of like, you know, I think you should try this. I'm, I've never... I was competitive when I was racing, but off the bike, like I'm, I'm more than happy to help other people. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to start coaching. So this was 2008, halfway through my career, and uh, it was good. Like I started coaching people for free. Like I just started coaching a few friends and started really on a basic level, and finally started charging a little bit of money. And so got that going. 2008 started that 2009 got a little bit bigger and then I sort of 2010 I had a really good year um, racing myself and at that point it was the perfect balance of like I was had enough away from myself focusing on other athletes that sometimes the thing with professional athletes that they're so involved in this themselves and their own story and their their fight every day that they put a lot of pressure and anxiety and it just you've got to be a little bit free as well to be able to to move forward it's like surfing a wave or trying to pick up a girl at the bar like if you're if you're too regimented about it she's not going to think you're very cool right so i got to that point 2010 where it's like i had the perfect balance between my own ambitions and training hard and i had a great team environment that i was with at that point and i had enough with my coaching that i what the focus was on me all the time and had a great year and that was that was good and but the business started to get a little bit busier uh i had another little roller coaster part of my career after uh the australia failed we're going to go world tour at one point and it sort of it sort of stopped um rug pulled out from under us and i made a conscious decision at that point that i'm only going to race for other people now so like i'll work for the team or I'll do you know you still got to train hard and you still got to be well prepared and stuff but it was a conscious decision to like invest in other people you know and I think that happens a lot with professional athletes as well as they sort of the first half of their career it's a little bit more selfish selfish a little bit more self-centered and then the second half you see that they get a lot more motivation from that team environment that team aspect so so that all coincided 
and then my business was was growing and at one point the business was starting to take a little bit too much energy you know just i had to sort of like manage those two things for a while um and then uh 2014 decided that that would be my last year and had a, a good final three years with united healthcare back then and um i was really happy and excited to just be able to it wasn't it was a smooth transition because it wasn't anything different than what i'd been doing for the six years before that anyway so it was just I took all of that energy that part of that energy that I was putting into training and and looking after myself that's a different question because I don't look after myself so well anymore um to now putting everything into my business and my athletes and and trying to grow and I have a, you know a few really great coaches that that work with me at day by day coaching and uh it's been really successful you know it's good times some hard times some pressure times and I think overall we're we're doing a great job and I love what I do so it's pretty cool. Sorry that wasn't the few words that you were asking for. <laughs> no, that's great. And Just I think it out three quarters of it. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's great because it's that's one of the reasons I was so excited to get you here is that as you mentioned before we've had discussions in the past and one thing that struck me with you with is with beer normally. With beer normally. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> That's a sticking point, right? <laughs> but one thing that struck me about you is that we hear of a lot of times professional athletes, they retire and they're not sure what to do. And so they think, I'll turn to coaching. I was fast. I'll make other people fast. And there's maybe a disconnect because as they start to work with athletes, they're just trying to do what worked with them. And what stuck out for me when talking to you is that you're so engaged with this and that you didn't just kind of rest on your laurels. You're still a student, and you continue to learn every day. We've talked about it before, um, but I would just love to hear kind of like in your eyes, what is the role of a coach? It's identifying who the person is. Like for me, so much of it is the relationship, and this is where it's a, a little bit of a difficult profession because it's only scalable as in a business model to a certain point because – I can only work with with so many athletes and give them the, the attention that they need because you have to be engaged and you have to create a relationship and sure there's different things like there's a there's a coaching relationship or a coaching service and there's training plans two totally different things here and we're talking about the coaching service but to really understand somebody and figure out how to steer them down that path to get the most out of themselves for that performance you got to listen a lot and you got to understand that person and some sometimes it's like the words that they say might actually mean something else so that, that's sort of the level that you need to know them and like there's some of my athletes I'm sure I know them better than them, their partners know them because that's something that I'm trying to create and I'm trying to to get out of them is this open and honest environment where they can tell me everything that's going on because performance really it's more than just power numbers and that's I think the professionals will know this and if you talk to these guys and you talk to them about their training and stuff like that there's very few who are just very very power number driven there's a lot more to performance than just that you got to know the numbers you got to understand what you need to achieve but it's everything that goes around that stuff as well so whether it's nutrition um the mind like the psychology side of things is so much more important than the lower level level athletes that I work with so everybody sort of has a different balance and you have to look at all these different things of the performance spectrum nutrition tactics training fatigue resistance recovery mental state all those different things and you got to figure out this is my person this is the performance puzzle that I'm working with. How do I manipulate all these different things in order to get the most out of this person in terms of performance? Because and it's generally a process of like lowest hanging fruit. 
So what are the things that we can work on first in order to you know kick the ball further down the line? Maybe it is really focusing on just on the training and on the power numbers, but it's different for everybody. And this is where you have to spend time and you have to engage with the person. You have to learn them. And sometimes it takes some time. Like it might take six months before you can really understand that person and really understand how they respond. And so you asked a question before, like, you know, I, I figured out what worked for me as an athlete, but I also figured out a few things that didn't work for me as an athlete. But just that very process, like it's essentially the scientific method, right? The scientific method is like coming up with a process, applying the process and validating it. If you can't validate it, then throw it out and try something else. You need to be open. You need to listen. You need to spend time just sometimes just brainstorming on the athlete and trying to figure out different ways of moving forward because you're always you're always going to come up to roadblocks at certain points and and curveballs and you've got to always figure out the best way to to move forward with that so um hope hope that answers that question it, it just it's a very nuanced thing i i don't think it's rocket science whatsoever and i i take issue with people who sort of present coaching as rocket science it's just logical process and listening and understanding to your athlete and that's the most important thing for me i always think about when i first started coaching it was it was much more simple when i first started because i thought there was one way and then over time you learn that it just gets more the more you know it just gets more and more complicated and i what i'm hearing you say is that the mental aspect is such a big part of that and so now you run a successful business with other coaches under you i imagine you're mentoring those coaches what, are, what kind of values are you trying to instill in them as they take on new athletes? Well, I have to say I'm lucky that with the coaches that I have worked with me, and it's you know, it's a little bit targeted on my behalf of who I want to work with me um, just because I want people with professional experience and I want people who can think for themselves. And I don't want I don't, I don't to blunt their, their touch on, on the athlete. Like, this is an art form as well. So, like, my demands are that they understand physiology, they understand the process, that they take the time to to listen and care for the athlete, and they're just diligent with their communication. And that that really is the basis for it. All of my guys, um, I have a couple of girls and staff as well, they're all professional athletes at some point. So they've been on both sides of the fence. You know, they've, they've experienced what it's like to go through a training process and to build up to peak form. Um... They've also studied through books and listened to other coaches and stuff like that. I really try to encourage them to be open-minded and continue to, to learn because I think the environment's always shifting. We, we need to have different um, different tools in our pocket all the time because we never know when we're going to meet that next athlete who, oh, I need an answer for the, for this problem that we're dealing with. Oh, I picked that up from that other coach over there. That's something that I'm going to try. I'll apply this, see if it works. Um, so I've been very lucky. My coaches are super talented. I have Chris Baldwin, uh, raced for 15 years professionally. Jeremy Hunt, who raced for 17 years professionally, started with Benesto Miguel Indrain back in 99 or 98 or something. And he retired with Team Sky in 2012. So he's a massive range of experience. Um, I have Maxine Sear, who's a triathlon coach, who's done a little bit of work with us. Uh, and I also have uh, Rachel Heal, who have just brought on uh, and she was the director of the really highly successful united healthcare women's cycling team for these last i think five years maybe uh, they won so many races and i'm really excited to have her on board and and for her to impart her experience on, on in the coaching world so so i look for those sort of people who 
have their knowledge and their experience like true in the world in the trenches experience and who aren't afraid to um to put their touch on the process because i think that's a really important thing but as long as they're listening and they're engaged with the athlete and they're using you know correct principles and processes to 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 move forward down the line they're good coaches and they've done a really good job and i'm really happy and excited and blessed that they're involved with with day-by-day coaching Last time we talked, or maybe it was a couple of years ago, you and I had a discussion around psychology, and you said something that has stuck with me, and I, I still reference it to this Uh-oh. day. You had said we were talking about talking to an athlete, and I think I was saying something where I might be talking to an athlete, and I say, well, I don't know, but I think it's this. And you had said, no, you can't, you, say, you can't say think no. because you plant a seed of doubt. So yeah. will you just speak to that a little bit? Oh, exactly. Like, you have to present a confident front, you know, like – we we can be wrong like i've been wrong many a times the athlete's been wrong many a times i have a little bit of a, a motto that i always remind myself like and i'll tell some of my athletes this is the process that we work for is to create perfection we're trying to create the optimal process we're trying to reach perfection but always keep in mind and this has to be part of that phrase that there's no such thing there's no such thing as perfection if you don't have the resiliency and the ability to handle the curveballs along the way, then you don't have a career in the first place. You're not going to survive for very long. The what we present, what we present to the athlete is like, take your time. I think sometimes it's like you don't have to answer them straight away. And this is something that I've learned from other coaches as well. Some guys who might present themselves a little bit more stoic, maybe a little bit less emotional or a little, little bit less reactive to the conversation. Sometimes like just just wait, just think about it a little bit longer or say, I'll get back to you on that because you need to put some thought into it. And instead of making a brash response that could be wrong, spend some time, think about it. And so there's two answers to your question here. Put some time into it and then come back at them and say, listen, I've thought about this. I've looked at all the different avenues and I think our best way forward, and this is always like a risk-reward scenario, right, is to take this course of action because of these different things and we should try this and that that presents to them that you've spent the time you've thought about it and that gets them engaged in the process but then the other thing too is like if you immediately present like oh i think this or yeah i think let's just you know maybe we just try that it doesn't have enough conviction you have to present confidence and positivity of like we should really get into this because this has the potential to to have this outcome that sort of belief mechanism like if the athlete doesn't believe in what you're telling them uh it's not going to work it's like working with uh, a therapist like whether it's a doctor a psychologist is a really good example um chiropractor any of these therapists any of these people who work on you if you don't believe that they can help you they won't help you because so much of the body's processes are driven by the mind and as airy fairy as, as we can make the mental side of things there is still scientific reactions to those sort of doubts and misconceptions and how that affects your central nervous system and all that sort of stuff the power of the placebo all these different things that it's true scientific reactions for that so like answer with conviction if you don't know the answer take a moment figure it out and then come back at them this is this is the way we should go forward I think there's an important distinction there, and it's not this absolute, like, blind confidence. You're saying, I've done my research. This is 
what we should do because it has the potential to do yeah. this. It's not a guarantee. No. There's a lot of other things that can happen For along sure. the way. But based on all the available evidence, this is the best path right now. Yeah. And so I think that's really important to them. For sure. And I think – just to jump off that for a second too, we also we live in a society now where people want the magic bullet. We as coaches are providing guidance that that is our role, but we can't do the job, you know. So if they ask us a question we don't need an answer for, let's go out there and research it and then, then give them the guidance of like, take this and run with it. But if you don't do the work, this is not gonna be the answer that you need. So another thing we talked about years ago was and you just talked about the power numbers and things like every day there's a new device that's introduced yeah. or some new data channel that we can measure and things sure. like that. And power is pretty much ubiquitous with cycling. Yeah. Everybody trains by that. Yeah. But you still train your athletes with heart rate as well. And so I'm just kind of curious, how does that work? Yeah. One, what led you to that? And two, how do you kind of prescribe training with heart rate and power? So this society of shortcuts, when it receives information, the problem is, and I was we are talking about this last night um, amongst with Frank Pip, who works here at Training Peaks, and, and Chris Baldwin, uh, who's one of my colleagues at Day by Day, and we're talking about this. And society, athletes, they hear some information. There's so much information out there now. There's The internet is rife with everything. There's podcasts. Where there's so many, so many people producing so much content. And they hear this little nugget and they're like, oh, that that's the answer. That's the end. This is going to be the thing that turns me into to the next Christopher and this is going to be the thing that wins me the Tour de France. And they take it to the extreme. And there's nothing about any of this stuff that works with extremism. And that's where people do it wrong. And for me, power became a little bit of that. It was the first tool that has been introduced into the cycling world that gives us such an accurate measure quantification of performance output um well actually maybe not performance output but just like physiological output is probably a better way to put it and the difference between those two is that performance is everything else in the mix right of like attacking at the right time nutrition um being efficient in the bunch all those sort of things so they're two very different things I found that people got so engaged with with power numbers that they forgot to look inside and have that sensation of like, how do I feel? Like, how is this making me feel? Like they just became robots and they just started to get driven to achieving that power number. And in a way of like, oh, I want to hit a personal best every single day. It just does not work like that. This is not this is linear sort of like shoot the rocket off to the to the moon sort of thing and never comes back. It doesn't work like that. So for me, the training process is very much one of breaking down the physiological output, which is where power is so amazingly important for us to, to use and quantify and analyze. But to break all of that down, and the training process is one of the nuts and bolts of what eventually equals that physiological output. So instead of, for, for me, so th- that word I think is the important one here is that Power for me is the output. I want to train the inputs. I want to train the nuts and bolts and other things that go into the, the beginning of that equation before we get that output on the other end. And, you know, I, I've, I've done it all and I, I've trained with power for, I paid for my first SRM in 2004 and it was $8,500. It took me about three years to pay it off. 
Um, so I've been training with power for a long time, um, and there's been periods of time when it's like, sort of left heart rate aside, and it was working with Inigo San, Dr. Inigo San Milan, who works out of um, CU, Colorado University here in Boulder. He's one of the foremost experts in the world on metabolic physiology, uh, done more lactate tests most likely on, on professional cyclists than probably anyone else in the world. So he has a lot of knowledge uh, in that realm and something that he brought across to me and presented to me was that heart rate actually gives us a little bit, or in his opinion and my opinion, is that the heart rate is giving us the physiological load on the body, you know, the what's the physiological stress of what we're doing right now because that's taking into into account all the other environmental factors as well of like heat, dehydration, um, those sort of things that get put into that mix too. Whereas heart rate is just, uh, power is just the output still. Altitude is the other big one with that as well, right? So I find a couple of things. Th- that's definitely not a perfect solution or a perfect definition of what it can do because I understand there are limitations um it lags fatigue will definitely suppress heart rate or will change a little bit over time so it's not all in on that one thing either but using a combination of heart rate and power together you get a lot more context about what's going on so the other thing i find with it is that if i present my athlete with my training zones that we'll figure out through testing and i have a, a bunch of i have it set up with heart rate zones and then i have power guidances throughout those heart rate zones those heart rate zones don't really change throughout the year normally once they've done a few weeks of training we do the testing we set those zones up zone two stays zone two doesn't matter whether they're at altitude here or whether they're in california at sea level or something like that that those those heart rate ranges remain very very consistent so when i'm asking them to train in zone two i want this physiological exertion so they're still going there and they're still getting that physiological load in San Diego or in Boulder, Colorado at 8,000 feet or something like that. Um, They're still getting the same physiological stress for what I'm asking for. It doesn't matter which location. And that doesn't really change too much throughout the year as as the year goes on, even as their fitness improves. What does change, obviously, is is the power. So I can set these zones up early and I just have to go back and revisit them just to make sure that those numbers don't shift too much in terms of the heart rate. But the power will shift all the time as long as I'm doing a good job with the training prescription, the athlete's doing a good job in getting the work done, those power uh, guidances will, will pick up throughout throughout that time. Um, so it's important to use both in combination with each other, not all heart rate, not all power, but use them to... to use both of them together to get more context about what's going on so things there that you can explore as well is like if all of a sudden your heart rate's really low um well let's do the other way around let's say your heart rate's really high but your power's really low something's going on you're probably about to get sick so you create those correlations of like now these things aren't lining up from what i've been looking at from the last month or two so something's wrong, you need to talk to Ben and let him know something's wrong, like what's going on, and you know, say, oh, you know, what are your symptoms, not sleeping well, stuff like that. I think you're a little bit cooked at the moment. Let's have a few days easy. So don't practice extremism. Don't just go down one pathway and forget everything else. Diet stuff, don't get me started on that as well. It's like it's not about being extreme about everything. It's about doing everything well, 
not giving up on the really important concepts. You've got to make sure that those fundamentals are there. And then from there, you make little nuanced changes and, you know, to explore the different, like, realms of, of, of performance and stuff. Um, but, yeah, I think it's just really important that we put all of those things into the mix and be engaged in, in all of that. So. You were just talking about doing doing the basic things right first, right, getting those basics right first. You've had the opportunity to work with a lot of pros, and also you work with age group athletes as well. And have you found anything, any kind of unifying theme across the board with the high-performing athletes or the successful athletes? The fundamentals are the same. Are the same. It's like it's one of the preconceptions that people will come when they talk to me for coaching for the first time, these amateur athletes, and they'll, they'll say, oh, but you only work with professionals. I don't. You probably don't know how to work with amateurs or uh, I don't need a professional coach. And I'm like, well, that's a bit silly. The, the fundamentals are completely the same. Doesn't doesn't change. The The performance puzzle definitely looks different on both sides and my what i've seen with that time and again is that at the the big introduction levels like the people who haven't been riding for too long uh they don't have a lot of you know training experience or racing experience for those guys the priority the lowest hanging fruit if you remember earlier back in our conversation of the performance puzzle we want to chase the lowest hanging fruit all the time for these guys it's about normally about executing the training, you know, just like create consistency. You know, these are things I learned from Joe Friel, right? First thing you got to do is create consistency in training, improve frequency of training, and then finally you can um, get into a little bit more intensity, but that might take a year or two. But with the the these athletes, the most important thing for them is generally going to be just the training process. Train well, eat well, recover well. Make sure you get those things right. So to flip that around for um, the the world tour athletes that I work with, now the psychological part of it is so, so much greater because I can prescribe some training that can be really, really hard and they'll ride off the end of the cliff to get it done. There's no... They're so talented, and they, they've already they've already at this level because they have a lot of talent and have learned so many things to be there. They're all... Most of them are very well educated and they understand the process as well. And if they were coaching somebody else, they could most likely make good decisions for that person too. Uh, so with those guys, it's helping them manage when you're training hard like that and you have all this fatigue in your system as well and you're trying to juggle life, your contract and all those other things around it and the stresses of racing and the expectation that you put on yourself and the expectation the team puts on you and the fans and social media and all this other stuff. They're the sort of things that's like helping create a clear process, a clear mind and helping them make good decisions and uh, it's so much more psychologically driven at that top level. And it's a little bit of a thing that I think about a lot and just try to be aware of is there's a few people in the sport who are just like a little bit head and shoulders above even the best, you know. So like there's three or four people, you know, and I don't know exactly how many there are, but like like a Philip Gilbert when he was going through like those golden years where he just didn't lose a race for so long. What is it with their mind and their psychology that helps them to not ever have any doubt? This comes back to, you know, when your athlete asks you something, you've got to answer with conviction, right? It's like they don't have that self-doubt. Like they get to the point, they got that win the week before, and that's a really material approach of getting into that state of mind. But like once the ball gets rolling, they just have so much belief in, in what they're doing. There's no doubt. And 
that's sometimes what it takes. Like as soon as you, any doubt comes into like a race result, it's too late because that other person has already finished there in front of you. Like you've got to have conviction till you fall off your bike, and that's that's the thing. And it's hard to get to that spot. It takes a lot of training and physical preparation and a lot of confidence that you've done a lot of hard work a little bit of recovery taper into it and then just belief like just innate belief a little bit of stubbornness in there as well now you've also had you've worked with some triathletes as well you don't just work with cyclists and you've worked have you worked with age group athletes or has it been um, primarily professionals i've worked with a couple of age group athletes as well but I, i wouldn't say that that was my forte and i'm not doing triathlon stuff personally anymore and it's the same thing like I understand performance and I understand the mind and I understand how to put the training processes together in order to to hit the performance but when it comes back to the very basics of obviously cycling is is the easy thing for me because I have so much experience in it but like swimming is so technically driven running is is also very technically driven those sort of things were were my weak points so like for age group athletes uh triathletes um for the the beginner triathletes it was something that i couldn't provide enough service in in those areas but the performance part of it's something that i could still put together well so i worked more with with professional triathletes so how did you handle that it's it's interesting to hear you say that you recognize that that there was a weakness there so did you kind of outsource that or work with your other coaches both so i definitely did my own study education i try to look for the who's who of, of those different fields to to learn from from their practices so you know there's experiential knowledge and then there's you know book to book taught knowledge and cycling for me is I wouldn't say predominantly, the same pretty leans more to the experiential side. Um, but then I searched to back that up with science and, and the book taught stuff. With triathlon, with the the swim work, um, swim technique and the run stuff, it was, you know, very predominantly book taught. And then I'd encourage them to go work in squads and stuff like that. I think triathlon is definitely a little bit more of a, a squad orientated process as well so if it, for them to get into uh, a swim squad and have a group to train with and, and have somebody on deck all the time I think that's it's a very important part of it um, so yeah I definitely had some some educational shortcomings with that and I just you know sort of tried to do my best in order to get that education but because I didn't have as much experiential knowledge of that stuff it just didn't flow as easy for me uh, but then with the professionals, I think that's just a little bit different because it's less technique-driven. It's still definitely a big part of it, but um, it's more about the physiology, the training, the mental, the, the nutritional side of things and and performance. You know, it's, it's a little bit more that orientated. In working with those triathletes, was there anything you learned from them yeah. that you think cyclists could benefit from yeah. or vice versa is there anything that cyclists do that maybe triathletes yeah. should start doing for sure so i think one thing that i experienced in in the triathlon world was that they actually put a, like a lot of thought and preparation and planning into their nutrition and i think that comes because it's a pretty defined event it's very steady state very steady state like exertion levels and 
you can just plan everything out to the T of like, I have a 180-kilometer bike ride to do, so I'm going to feed at this 20K, 40K, whatever it might be. I'm going to have this many grams of carbohydrate. I'm going to drink this much of fluid by that point. I'm going to have that much sodium on board. So that was a really cool process and putting a lot more definition of what the demands are and making sure that those demands are met. And I feel like cycling could do a better job with that. Uh, but then on on the other side, so to finish that answer that for your question there, the thing that surprised me about the, the triathlon world and most predominantly the Ironman world is that it surprises me and maybe shocks me, annoys me, all of those all of those emotional words there. Um, they're very driven by peer pressure. You know, it's like Craig Alexander does 38 hours of training a week. Therefore, I need to do 38 hours of training a week. It's crap. Because and you don't see that in cycling? No, no. But it's a, the, the, the training process in cycling is a lot more individual. And I mean, cycling is only a team sport when you're in a team. And that's, I don't know if that's the majority or not, but... Um, but everybody gets their preparation, their own individual preparation done together. And when they get to the race, that's only then do they sort of like have that team aspect of it. Whereas I don't know why I'm even talking about teams when Ironman especially, like it's not a team event either, but maybe it comes back to them, you know, where swim squads and run squads and like they have those little environments set up where they're, measuring each other and racing each other and there's intimidation of like oh this guy's training so much and doing all these things and did you see that guy he posted that thing on youtube and he was on the trainer and he was like and he was like doing all these five minute efforts and all that sort of stuff and and craig alexander figured out what worked for him 38 hours of training a week it's not something that i would prescribe to everybody because he obviously has a massive aerobic engine and he responds well to volume you can still do a hell of a lot of really good high-quality work, 22, 23, 24 hours a week or something like that. And maybe you need something in the middle of that. It's something that you have to apply, scientific method, processes again, right? You have to apply, see if it works, and then go from there. If it doesn't, it's good. you got to change it up. Maybe you need more volume. Maybe you need less. Maybe you need more intensity. Maybe you need less. Or if it does work, you know, now you're on a golden ticket. But define what works for you. Be yeah, be aware and open-minded of what everybody else does, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the thing that is going to be what you need to get the most out of yourself. Great. I've just got one more question for you before I let you go. Since you are a mentor to coaches, um, I think you probably have a lot of wisdom to pass on to the coaches that are listening to this. So do you have any words of advice or recommended reading for our listeners? I think just a lot of, you know, obviously this has been a little bit of the tangent of our conversation here is just that it's an all-encompassing thing. It's it's a holistic thing. And don't go to the extremes. Don't go down just one rabbit hole. It's it's the balance of all of these different things, and that balance is always going to change for different athletes. So use all the different things that you're hearing about, apply them, figure out whether you should keep them into your processes or not, throw it out, but create the scientific method right create the processes of like i'm going to try this i'm going to apply it if it works it works if it doesn't need to do something else throw it out start again be engaged with your athlete the relationship is everything if you don't understand who your athlete is if you don't have open if you don't have an environment where they can be open and honest with you and tell you what's going on you're never going to get everything out of them out of them it's impossible it's not 
it's not me coach versus other coach don't doesn't don't have to be competitive with the other coaches out there collaborate learn it's not i'm trying to steal your athletes don't try to steal their athletes it's like athletes are making their own decisions like just be proud and confident and have trust in your processes and, and pride in your processes that they're the right things to do recommended readings um um, there's a couple of really cool psychology books out at the moment. There's one called Endure from Michael Hutchinson. Alex Hutchinson or Michael? Alex Hutchinson. Alex Hutchinson. Yeah. That I've just started reading. And I like it because it's like it's presenting a holistic viewpoint of like these are all the things that go into performance. It's not just the training. It's not just the training. There's all these other things as well. So it's something that I'm enjoying too. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this. And I know that I got a lot out of it. Um, low-hanging fruit process listen to the athlete performance puzzle performance puzzle yeah absolutely that's um, a great word and we'll um, use that for sure thanks again for your time my pleasure thanks for having me over we hope you've enjoyed our talk with ben day to find out where to follow ben and a list of the resources he mentioned in this episode check out the training peaks blog if you're enjoying the training peaks coach cast be sure to subscribe and share and let us know what else you'd like to learn about by leaving reviews or tweeting to us at at training peaks until next time Music